So I want to talk to you about a theme called The Look of Love. Sounds like a familiar title. But what does love look like? What does love feel like? What is love? How would you define it? How would you respond to that question? Uh, would you call it an emotion? Or an ocean of emotions? Would you say it's a certain kind of behavior? That love is purely physical? It's chemistry? I've heard so many people say it's a chemical reaction. American culture has made romance and sensuality the primary focus of love. It's a view of love that is superficial. It's highly conditional on physical appearance. A woman was abandoned by her husband for many, of many years. A friend asked her if he, if he left her for a younger woman. And, the friend, and she answered, of course he left me for a younger woman. Anybody his own age would be able to see right through him. Through the ages of time, one of the great questions that thinkers and philosophers have asked is, what is the supreme good? What is the one thing that's overarching all things? That's a big question for it to be answered. Peter answers it this way. Above all things, in 1 Peter 4.8, he writes, above all things have fervent love one for another. Now, if you're working on your sheets... You wrote in fervent in that blank, and this is, you can take this home with you and do your own Bible study of the sermon today. So that first line was fervent, and fervent means with a deep love, a deep love. John goes further and says that in John 4, 8, God is love. So the essence of who God is, is love. God is love. And Paul makes a profound statement in Romans 13, 10. He says, love is the fulfilling of the law. What in the world does that mean and how in the world does that work? Well, think about it. The Ten Commandments say there are a series of do nots, thou shalt nots. Well, if you really love somebody, how could you steal from them? If you really love somebody, how could you cheat on them? If you really loved somebody, how would you want to hurt them physically or emotionally. See, love transcends the law. If you really love, you want to do what's right and what's best for the person your love is directed towards. Love was not Paul's strong point. As you read and study the Bible, you will notice that Paul grows more tender-hearted as he grows older. It's an amazing thing. You can see the metamorphosis, I better use another word, the transformation of Saul. Henry Drummond writes in his book, The Greatest Thing in the World. This was a book written on 1 Corinthians 13, and this is what he writes about Paul. Quote, the hand that wrote the greatest of these is charity. When we see, when we, when we meet it first, it's stained with blood. He was a murderer. He was a, church, a, a country-sponsored, a nation-sponsored terrorist. That's what he was hired to do. He was to be heartless, cold-hearted. And that's the way he operated. How could that guy, how could that guy turn from one thing to a completely different person? And the answer is Jesus. So if you think it's impossible for you to love the way God would have you to love unconditionally, think about Paul. Think about the transformation that he made in his life. What does Paul write a love 
which is greatest of all. And for that, we turn to a portion of scripture called the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'd like you to stand with me as, we, as I read it to you, 1 Corinthians 13. And look at these words, and I'll explain them as we go along. We're going to break this chapter down verse by verse. Here we go. He writes, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity. Now, that word charity, again, means love in action. It's not just a word. You do something with it. I become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not that charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profits me nothing. Charity suffers long, it's kind, envies not, vaunts not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave unseemly, seeks not her own, is not easily provoked, thinks no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Charity never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail, whether there be tongues, they shall cease, whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I also am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. The greatest of these is love. Thank you. You may be seated. So in the first three verses, Paul compares and contrasts love with other good things. He says it's greater than your ability to be eloquent. You could be the best speaker in the world. You could be the greatest pastor, the greatest evangelist, but there ain't no love behind it. It's zippo. It's zero. Greater than spiritual gifts and talents. If you've got tremendous talents and abilities, does it have love accompanying it? Love is greater than education. It's greater than material possessions. It's greater than any sacrifice you could possibly make. It's greater than faith or hope. That's pretty amazing. Greater than faith and hope is love. It's greater than even giving yourself up as a martyr. The greatest thing you can do in this world is to love somebody. If we possess all these good qualities, but the driving force behind them is anything but love, Paul writes, our actions are empty and meaningless. In verse 3, he says, you'll profit nothing by your good works without love. Amy Carmichael was a great Christian author, and she said, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. Think about that. And David Wilkerson, who was the founder of Teen Challenge, he wrote, love is not only something you feel, it's something you do. If you're not expressing, if you're not demonstrating your love, others will not experience it. I mean, my prayer as your pastor is that you will sense that I love you. 
because I will do whatever it takes to be there by your side when you're going through some of the difficult times in life. I'll be there, I'll be there for marriage, I'll be there for childbirth, and I'll be there in death in order to stand beside you and let you know that God loves you, that anything I do is to give glory and honor to Jesus. Our society relies on feelings, and if we allow those feelings to dictate our actions as if we have no control over our feelings or our actions, it's true of marriage, friendships, the church, and the life decisions we make. Often, what you do determines how you feel. What's coming out of here determines how you, if, if you're joyful in here, the joy is going to spread. I, I, there are so many people who come into the congregation in the morning and their faces are glowing. They've got such a beautiful smile on their face. I get encouraged when I see that. I mean, you could come in here with, as my Yiddish friends would say, a fabisna punim, which is a long face and a, a grumpy look. You don't have a grumpy look. It's wonderful. And when I see your smiling faces, it's a source of encouragement. I hope mine is for you. Paul spells out nine qualities of love in 1 Corinthians 13. And if we remember and practice them, we will allow it, they will allow us to demonstrate the kind of love that lasts a lifetime. So let me take you through these nine qualities of chapter 13. This is what you're looking for. This is what you want to experience. This is who you are. Number one. Verse 4 says, love is patient. It uses the word long-suffering. Patience is a rare commodity these days. We want it here, and we want it now, but love doesn't work that way. Love takes time to grow. It starts out at a little thing, a seed. Differences take time to work out. Hurt feelings take time to heal. The past takes time to be forgotten. Learning to appreciate another person takes time. And it takes time for all living things to grow. Marriage is like that. It takes time to work out the differences. It takes time to be encouraged by one another. It takes time even to be in the same room with that person and feel comfortable. It takes time for you to learn what your spouse is thinking, which is one of the scariest things of our marriage. Jean knows what I'm thinking almost all the time. And she said, I knew. She anticipates what I'm going to be doing. Think about it. Number two, verse four, says love is kind. Romans uh, 12.10 says, be kindly affectionate one to another. And Ephesians 4.30, be kind and tenderhearted. This should be a mark in our congregation. This is what people should experience when they walk in here that we're kind to each other, that we love one another. They should be able to feel it just when they walk into the room. And this has been our reputation for many, many years, that people have walked into this church and said, this is the most loving church I've ever come into. Amen? And that's not because of me. That's because of us together as a body of believers, that we are welcoming and we're loving and we're caring and we want to show it. Not just on Sunday morning from, a, from 10 o'clock on, but each and every day. I hope when we come and meet each other at Walmart that we'll have that same love for one another down the aisle. To be kind is to be friendly, warm-hearted, good. Kindness is spoken with what you normally give me, a smile, a hug, a sympathetic ear, or in a word or words that are potent and powerful. Our words can be laced with arsenic or honey. 
They can build up, they can tear down. So when we speak to one another, we should choose our words carefully. I think I got more of a positive response when I preached the sermon on your words matter than I've gotten in a long time from any. Everybody really appreciates what I say on Sunday morning, but the word sermon really spoke to so many hearts because it's common of all of us not to be careful with our words. But being careful with your words is the loving thing to do. Verses three and four, love is generous, not jealous. That words that were used in the King James was envies not. When you truly love someone, it doesn't matter if they're smarter than you, if they're taller than you, if they're thinner than you. I mean, there's always somebody bigger, better, stronger, financially more well-able, socially better off than you, more talented than you. But love rejoices when family and friends are doing well. There's little enough. I've experienced this in my lifetime. Maybe you have too. There are certain people who, as far as they're concerned, if other people are misery, misery, in misery, those folks are happy. Have you noticed that? Have you ever experienced that? There are some people that are very, very happy if someone else fails or falls. We can't be rejoicing over that. Our hearts have to go out to that. We should be the first person, like the fireman, into that person's life to pour in love and care. Number four, verse four. Love is humble. The phrase was not puffed up. Do you enjoy being with someone who is continually talking about themselves? When I was a kid growing up, there was a guy named Joe. And Joey, not you, Joe. No, you're very humble. This guy was far from humble. Everything about this guy was I, was me. And uh, I remember he told a story. His father owned a restaurant in, uh, in, uh, down, in, in uh, Little Italy on Mott Street. His father owned a very famous restaurant. And uh, his son, would, this boy Joe, he worked there. He was kind of like the maitre d'. And he'd let people in. Now, to get into his father's store on a Friday night or a Saturday night, the lines were all the way down the block. And different ones would come and they'd want to get ahead and he told a story about how Frank Sinatra came one night and he wanted to push past the line. And Joe jumped out and he said, Frankie, you better get to the back of the line or I'm going to have to knock you out. Now, if you know Frank Sinatra, you know it would have been the other way around. But everything was, he was always telling stories about himself and all of those stories, most part, those stories were all exaggerated and untrue. And people knew it, but he kept doing it. And the answer to why they do that is if I don't blow my own horn, nobody else would. Every sentence begins with the pronoun I. I don't know if that pronoun works anymore in this environment. <laughs> I don't know which pronoun works these days. There are two problems with that mindset. And one of them is it has no room for anybody else in your life, including you. Secondly, it has no concept of appreciation because these folks think they don't need anybody else. They don't need you. They don't need God, and they often find out the hard way that self-love doesn't last very long. Five, number five, verse five, love is courteous, does not behave itself unseemly. We live in a crude culture, okay? I think everybody's aware of this. You cannot watch a movie without certain profane and vulgar words and scenes. All R-rated movies, and that's what our young people are watching, unfortunately. No act or action is deemed obscene, 
No behavior is out of bounds. And those who object to the new morality, which is really what? It's really the old morality. It's not a new morality. There's nothing new under the sun, the Bible says. So all the junk you now see on television that's profane and ugly and vulgar, that's happened for as long as man's been here. Hey, the first nasty act was Cain killing Abel, right? And by the way, you do know that God never covers up the heroes in the Bible. He shows them with all their warts and all their wrinkles. He makes sure you know that these people are just like you and me. And look what happened when God got them. He transformed them like Paul. He can do the same for you. Make no mistake, the underlying intention of movies push, being pushed to our kids uh, is erasing the lines of what's right and wrong. That's what they're up to. That's their agenda. Basically, the more profanity you hear, the more times you hear Jesus' name being used, the less it will shock you. The more you get accustomed to it, the more you're used to that being the lingo of the day. Does it have to be the lingo of the day? Absolutely, it must for, them to, for their agenda to go forward. And we're the victims, and sometimes, many times, we let ourselves be the victims. Young people find themselves with no firewall, no shame to slow down their poor choices, and think through the consequences of their action. They just respond, they just react, they don't think. And so easy nowadays, because if you get the idea you want to see something that's vulgar, pick up your smartphone, and it's right there. Number six, verse five, love is unselfish. It considers the other person first. It thinks about consequences. It prioritizes time and finances so that there's enough of both left to serve the Lord. It's difficult in a consumer-oriented culture where we've, sold, we've been sold on the idea that bigger is better and abundance is our birthright. I mean, what do people want? They want a bigger car? Well, I don't know if they want to. Well, yeah, they still do want a bigger car. And they still do want flashy stuff. And we still do want the biggest picture tube, or not tube anymore, but biggest screen. We want all that's biggest, and we want all that's best. But life's not only about that. And the reality is that we find out over time, they don't really satisfy. They're not the thing that's deep-seated in our hearts and minds. The things that are deep-seated in our hearts, our mind, our need for God, our need for love, our need for acceptance, our needs for people to give us a listening ear, our people to care enough about us when they see us downhearted that they come in and start pouring some joyful things in our lives. I mean, God loves you. Verse seven, number seven, verse five, love is even-tempered even-tempered, not easily provoked. Well, I've told you enough times now so that you shouldn't be surprised if I, if I tell you this again, that there was a time when I had a very bad temper. And it took years. Patience, right? Love is patient. Jean was patient. God was patient. And eventually, I was able to reduce the flames of that uh, short-sightedness and short, uh, short uh, fuse to a place where it takes a lot more to get me going these days. And I don't even know if I can really get going the way I got going because I think my get, my get up and go is gone. <laughs> Some of the easiest people to work with 
are those who are even-tempered. What you see today is what you get tomorrow. That's pretty good. They're predictable in the finest sense of the word. On the other hand, people easily provoked are unpredictable and sometimes uncontrollable. Have you ever seen somebody go off? And it's just you don't want to be around when it happens. These people say what's ever in their mind and don't care how much it hurts or who it hurts. Many times good people with bad tempers wish they could take back what they said. Sometimes they can. And sometimes they can't. The Bible says the tongue is a fire no man can tame, but praise God, he's in the tongue-taming business. Number eight, verse five, love is forgiving. It thinks no evil. Love doesn't dwell on past injustices like we do, past wrongs like we do, or past unpleasantness like we do. It doesn't keep a laundry list of every misspoken word or inappropriate deed. It may not always forget it, but it forgives and moves on. You, can, you see this kind of love overcomes grudges. It's kind of the ointment, the oil, the lubricant that keeps us going. Verse nine, uh, number nine, verse six, love is honest. Love is honest. I have a wonderful story to share with you that I think shed some light on that. Love is honest. In order to love one must be honest. Lies hurt. Lies hurt the people we love. Here's the story. Mahatma Gandhi's grandson, Arun, tells how one day his father asked him to drive him to a meeting. My father asked me to drop off the car at the repair garage and then be back at five o'clock to pick him up. I dropped my father off for the meeting and got the car to the garage by one. I figured I had enough time to go to see a movie, which I did. That day there was a double feature. So what did I do? I stayed checking out the first one and stayed for the second. I got out, I checked my watch, and I realized it was past five o'clock, the witching hour to see my dad. I rushed to the corner where my father had said he would be waiting. And when I saw him there standing in the rain, I tried to think of excuses I could make. I rushed up to him and I said, Father, you must forgive me. It took, me, it took longer to, get the repair, to, to repair the car than I thought it would take. But if you wait here, I'll go and get it. It should be ready by now. My father bowed his head and looked down. Put yourself in the kid's place when you hear this. He stood quietly for a long moment and said, when you were not here at our meeting time, I called the garage to see why you were late. They told me the car was ready by three o'clock. Now I have to give some thought as to how I have failed so as to have a son who would lie to his own father. I have to think about this. So I will walk home and use that time to ponder the question. The, grand, the, the son said, Aaron Gandhi said, Quote, I followed my elderly father home that rainy night, watching him stagger along the muddy road. I rode behind him with the headlights of the car flashing ahead of his steps. And as I watched him stumbling toward home, I beat on the steering wheel. And with tears streaming down my eyes, I said over and over and over again, I will never lie again. I will never lie again. I will never lie again. 
In choosing to use the Apostle Paul to be the instrument to write our text, God demonstrates that true love is possible even in the most extremely unlikely people. Remember, it was Paul who supervised the killing of the first martyr, Stephen, and he who ordered the torture and execution of the first Christians. It was he whose name Saul brought fear to every city where the early churches sprouted. It was this persecutor, this hater, this religious bigot, this ravaging beast who would one day come face to face with the God of love. When Saul met Jesus, malice was mastered by love. Everything changed when the man of hate met the God of love. Over time, Paul learned to love. Make no mistake, true love takes prayer, lots of work to make it work. If it's hard for you to love, or if love has died in your marriage, or friendship, or if your first love for Jesus in the church has deteriorated, do something about it. Try putting into practice Paul's nine marks of love, what I call the look of love. Be patient, be kind, be generous, be humble, be courteous, be unselfish, be even-tempered, be forgiving, and be honest. You have nothing to lose, and you may learn to love again. Pray to love again, because love is the greatest good. Amen? Father God, we pray that you would help us to love again in our hearts, in our actions, in the way we treat people, in the way we care for those in this congregation, in the way we care for one another in that special, special way as brothers and sisters in Jesus. And help us to take the light of that love and shine it on the people with whom we come in contact every single day. People who don't know Jesus as Savior, when they see us and they see his love shining from us, that will be the first thing that will attract them to want to hear more. So we pray a blessing. I pray an anointing upon this congregation. I pray, Lord, that your love will live each and every day in them for them to share. And I pray all of this in the unconditional loving Jesus. Amen and amen.